Welcome to episode 326 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We've got a great conversation coming up in this episode. It's We're doing a lot of episodes where you feel that compliment. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. We do one, and then we kind of do the other to bring the other half or the other side into things. And if those who are listening to us have missed last week's episode, they should go back and listen to it. It's going to be, I think, kind of a precursor for where we're going today. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking about the visible church. We did the invisible church, and now the visible church. And again, if you're still thinking, why on earth would we need to make these distinctions? Are they necessary? Are they helpful? Are they biblical? Well, we'll get to some of that, but you're definitely going to want to listen to last week's episode in preparation for the conversation that's going to unfold in an epic kind of way. But of course, before we do that, let's affirm with and deny against a couple things. And I'm going to turn it over to you as usual, but uh, well, let's just do affirmations first, shall yes. we? Yeah, let's do it. So this is uh, this is an affirmation that actually is a little bit bittersweet. So we have been longtime users of the web app Pocket, and I think that I have found an option that actually supplants Pocket as my preferred storage read-it-later app. Uh, Pete Bot, his gears are just grinding right now because everything he does is in Pocket. Um, the one caveat is it's a it's a premium service, or it will be very soon, so Pocket still has a place, but the the app is called Matter M A T T E R. Have you heard of this yet? Just vaguely, because it's kind of come up as like maybe like the the one app to rule them all yeah. when it comes to storage and read later. But I know again, there's a subscription element coming. Yeah. So so the one the one um, quibble I've had with Pocket is it has no native RSS integration. So if you, which, which is probably by design, like you don't want everything coming to your pocket. That's the point of pocket is that you're discriminating what goes into your reader there, but you have to have a lot of like other steps to get things into pocket if you're using an RSS reader. Um, so other apps have integrations and all that stuff. So it's not super difficult, but matter is basically the same idea. You store, um, you see something on the web, you copy and paste the URL or you use a, um, a plugin for Chrome or something like that to then bring that into Matter. What's really nice or what I found really nice about Matter, I think that the text-to-speech is actually better than Pocket. I think it's more reliable. Um, it also has built-in highlighting, which Pocket also does, but there is an Obsidian integration. So if you wanted, if you're using Obsidian like I am, or if you're using something like Notion, I'm sure they have a Notion integration or something like that, Rome Research, that kind of stuff. When you highlight it, it automatically creates a formatted um, a formatted note in your Obsidian. You have to set up the integration, but it pulls out the highlights. So if you're doing um, if you're doing how to build a second brain, which we've talked about before, uh, and you're sort of on that first layer of of capturing, well, it does the capture automatically for you as you highlight. So you capture the whole article. Then you highlight, and as you highlight, it pulls those highlights into a separate node in Obsidian for you then to go continue doing the progressive summarization thing. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, then just read build, How to Build a Second Brain by Tiago Forte, um, which I found I found very useful for distilling information down. I've also found this has the ability, this is where I think it's really strong. You can pull in, uh, like if you use Gmail, you can log into your Gmail through Matter and identify what senders are sending you newsletters. It'll pull those newsletters in and convert them into articles in Matter that you can highlight and it does the exact same thing. It'll read them to you. It's got RSS integration. You can actually sync it up with Pocket and it'll identify your most common authors that you've had in your Pocket library. So it's it's a it's a premium service. So it, you know, not everybody's going to want to pay for a service and I don't know that I'm ready to to shell out the premium cost for it yet. I've been experimenting with it a little bit. Um, but it's pretty slick. I think it's really really kind of the next step or sort of an evolution of Pocket. Pocket is great, but it hasn't had any updates or changes for years. It's been static and and hasn't made any 
real movement. Um, Pocket also has a premium uh, option. So it may be that a lot of these features that um, I'm identifying in Matter that I really like that I feel like Pocket is missing uh, are in the premium model. But the RSS integration alone for me makes it a, a better app. So check it out. It's Matter. I think it's, uh, I'll find the URL eventually. But if you just look up Matter, say, read it later on Google, you should find it. Um, they have all the normal apps, you know, iOS, Android, web integration, all that stuff. And it's a good reminder that people can also check out Pocket if they have interest. By the way, just in case anybody's like, I, I don't understand, you keep saying that word. I don't actually understand what you mean by it and what it actually is. These are just tools that allow you as you're surfing, consuming information online or in other places on your mobile device that instead of feeling compelled to have to do something with them now, but you'd like to get to them later, right. it allows you to, to basically send over those things to like a place of storage. And in that place of storage, which is, is at Pocket or Matter, you're able to do all kinds of things with it later on, create a reading list, create a playlist, actually, if you want to listen yep. to the article being read to you instead of having to read it yourself. So this is just another way to consume all kinds of information, but do it on your own time. You get to choose. Yeah. Don't let the internet tell you when you have to read something. Put that on your schedule and time. especially great. Like if you come across maybe a theological article, for instance, and you think, you know what, I'd like to make this part of my time of meditation and preparation. It's great for that kind of thing. Yeah. So it's the way to have the internet uh, basically under your thumb, as opposed to the other way around, at least in a small way. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that I think is an improvement too is, um, the sorting capabilities in Pocket I found lacking. You can't really organize things all that well. You can either, uh, there's just some issues with the way it sorts articles. Uh, primarily it's chronological of when you save them, but there's no real like filtering or sorting other than that that I found. Matter allows you to sort your articles in your queue in a number of different ways. So I have mine by default now sorted with the shortest article first. So as I have time, it's automatically presenting to me the shortest article that it is saved for me. But if you are one of those people that wants to make sure you're reading things, you're not letting an article that's long go too long because you you want to read it when it's still timely. You can sort it by how long something has been in your matter library. You can send PDFs to it. So I have a number of journal articles. Um, I have access to a journal database through my alumni account at Gordon-Conwell. So I have a number of articles that I've been meaning to get to that I can just send the PDFs straight over to there. Um, so it really is a slick uh a slick thing. If you make use of a service like this and it's valuable to you, I actually think that the cost of this would be pretty, uh, pretty reasonable. Uh, I want to say it was like $8 a month, $9 a month, which is not a small amount of money, but for a valuable service like this, I think if, if it improves your life in terms of accessing this information, um, and you read a lot of things, you store a lot of things in this fashion, that $8 is probably made up in the extra time that you would use trying to like sort out and store and write task lists and stuff for these kinds of articles. Um, and the integration with Obsidian is really slick. Once you set it up, it just automatically, as you make highlights, it creates this note. It updates the note if you add more highlights. Um, it just is a really, really great way to capture information, either in total, kind of like the whole article, just so you can read it later, or once you've started to process it, you can distill it down. Um, the audio is slick. It's it's a very uh, human-like voice. It doesn't sound like Siri is reading an article to you. Um, and what's cool is it actually like, uh, it's funny, it's got like a little button that looked like an uh, like the button you click when you want Google Maps to like orient itself to the direction you're facing. And I was like, what's this button do? Well, what it does is it bounces the text. It highlights the words as it's reading it. So you can, you can stop that. So you can highlight a phrase and then you hit it and it'll jump right back down to where the text is. So there's just a lot of really, really slick features. Um, like I said, I think it's, I think it's all of the best features that you find in pocket. And I think they've kind of taken them up to the next level. Once again, file that under what a time to be alive that you can have all these great options. People should go check it out and play with it. I'm sure they'll have fun and yeah. enjoy it. Yeah. What about you? What are you affirming today? I'm going to keep it quick. So it's been a little while since I've affirmed with any kind of music in particular in our conversations. And I'm coming back in hot in the new year in 2023 with brand new music. And so I'm affirming with an album called Holy Name. It's a self-titled album. So this is a band on Face Down Records. The band is called Holy Name. It is one word if you want to look it up. And their new self-titled album is interesting. So I'm affirming with it because it is, so it is, I would say, harder music. What I love is that the band itself has taken upon themselves to label their music as preach core, 
which I was like, well, that's a high bar. If you're going to call it that. So I started listening to this because I was vaguely familiar with them. And yes, this album is just all the way through and through filled with lovely theology, deep things to meditate on from the scriptures. In particular, and I love this, the second track on this particular record is called Creed. And it's just the Apostles' Creed set to music, which is is not novel, but it might be in this genre. Nice. And so I think you'll find something here for everybody. It's both melodic and it's got that hard edge. The thing that's interesting about this album, I would say above all else though, is that the cadence of the music is very slow and chill. It's not driving. So there is like a contemplative nature, something methodical and deep and resting about the music. And so I think it's worth giving a shot. Even if you're maybe not into this genre, I'm encouraging everybody to go check out Holy Name, their new self-titled album, which just came out in January. So this is literally brand new music. You too can be on the cusp of some really great different music. Nice, nice. Yeah, I'll uh, probably not check that out because I don't listen to music very often. But if you're a music aficionado, Jesse is your guy. He's got all sorts of great recommendations. Yeah, this one's a little bit off the beaten path. Based on records, is it produces a lot of really amazing. I hate to use the word like Christian music because it's so overdone, and we we call what we call Christian music these days is really really broad. The the standard deviation of that is so wide as to sometimes be meaningless. So I hesitate to use it. This is just a really great scriptural based music. It's doxological. It's obviously historical with bringing into the creed and uh, you're definitely getting your ears filled with all kinds of good stuff and you get to rock out, which of course is the double blessing for me. So I understand in our pre recording meeting that instead of at this point, dropping down the gear shift into D for denials that you actually got another affirmation. I do. It's a new year. So I figured I'd start it on the positive side of things. So I've affirmed this before, but I never really fully got into it before. Uh, many people have, have heard and know that I'm on kind of this productivity kick over the past, I don't know, six, seven months, um, maybe a little bit longer than that. And I have since started a bullet journal now, not like one of these, like girly like flowers on every page art project bullet journals i found a number of youtube tutorials um about how to do a minimalist bullet journal which is more or less i'm I'm modifying it as i go but more or less just a black pen and uh, lots of words so one of one of the things if you've never heard of a bullet journal a bullet journal is a uh, a journal that is created using primarily using bullet pointed entries. And so the idea um, behind this is that you are able to capture thoughts, tasks, events very quickly in bullet points. So rather than writing out a long form journal, uh, as you go through your day and you have thoughts, you, you bullet them out. And then there's a system of like markers to identify what these are. There's a book called The Bullet Journal Method, which is written by Ryder Carroll, who is the inventor of this bullet journal method. And one of the things that I think I missed the first time on my first go around on this, and and actually probably not my first time, I've tried to start bullet journals several times. One of the things that I missed is that the bullet journal is not primarily a productivity tool. Um, What he says about it is it's a mindfulness tool disguised as a productivity uh, tool. And so the, the idea behind that is you're able to um, sort of get your thoughts out onto paper, but the act of doing it in analog. So instead of doing it in an app or doing it in a digital medium, the act of getting it out on paper and doing it analog forces you to take extra time, which feels counterintuitive, but it actually is intentional. So for example, one of the things I struggle with is making my way through books to completion. I start tons of books and I make it 25 to 30% of the way through and then I, I move on. So one of the things I'm implementing is every book that I'm reading, I make a page that has a progress chart on it that I track my progress. And up in the top corner of that page, I have a box that I'm drawing that says why. And I write down why it is I'm reading this book so I can visually see the progress I'm making. It forces me every month when I start over because you sort of like you get through with a month and then you recreate kind of like your monthly spread, which would include like your tasks. You draw a calendar. There's certain things you do every month. I'm going to have to reproduce this book chart for each book that I'm reading and ask the question, why am I reading this? 
So not only does it remind me if I want to continue reading it, why I want to continue reading it, but if, I, if I'm struggling to answer why do I want to keep reading this book, then I either need to keep reading a book that I don't know why I'm doing it and grapple with that, or I need to figure out why, or I just abandon and I don't take the time to put the put the work into make reproducing the chart by hand. So, and there's all sorts of different ways you can do that. People create their own custom habit trackers. Some people use it exclusively as a task management system, but the book is quite good. It's easy to read. Um, so I, I'm excited. I, I, I've already gotten further in producing and creating my bullet journal and creating a little bit of a method than I have in the past. Um, I went and bought a, uh, some supplies today. I've hesitated to buy extra supplies for it because I've started and stopped so many times on bullet journals. But it's a it's an interesting way to look at tracking and kind of remembering what's going on and being Mindful, not in the weird like Eastern meditation sense, but mindful in the sense of like slowing down and taking inventory of what's going on in front of you and around you and documenting that and tracking it and keeping it sort of in the front of your mind. So I like, for example, I have I have a way that I do Bible memorization, but now I write down what Bible I'm what Bible verse I worked on today. Or I, the night before I go to bed, I write on my list for the next day, the Bible reading and my Bible reading plan for the next morning. Now then that motivates me to go back in because I don't want to leave that in my journal uncomplete. So now there's like another step that I have to complete, but it's driving me to be more consistent in my Bible reading. So the number of ways you could use a burn bullet journal is only restricted by the number of people using a bullet journal. It's a, a very flexible system. Um, but yeah, check it out. If it's something you're interested in, if you've wanted to develop a journaling practice, it's it's not a bad way to go. And it's a bit of uh, this amalgamation of anything you want it to be, right? So you could right. use it to help keep a calendar, use it to help keep goals. That's actually the beauty of it is, though, as you said, kind of tongue in cheek at the start of that, some people use it and design these really like flourishing right. and ethically complicated drawings. You can do all that. But the whole point of a bullet journal is that you get to customize, make it bespoke to whatever you want to do. And right. then you just develop an outline or a strategy or a construction, something that's represented on those pages. Yeah that helps you do that very thing. So instead of like feeling like, oh, I don't like to go and just get like a daily planner because it doesn't really suit me. And I, I always find that I want to do different things with it. Well, this is kind of like getting to create your own. So if you're that kind of person that loves to kind of get your hands dirty with the creative process for productivity, or if you found that all the other resources that you used in the past didn't really suit you and you're always thinking, you know, what if I had this? Or I wish I could just do this with that thing. You can actually do it here by just designing yeah. yourself. And, and you don't need to be overwhelmed with that because like you said, there's certainly lots of great tutorials out there that of like various complexity and rigor right. that you can take a look at and then kind of take in and metabolize and make your own. Yeah. And one of the things, maybe this is a sub affirmation or, or a suggestion, if someone is interested in this, I, um, my wife bought some of these around Christmas time and I really like them and I've used these pens before. Jesse and I love a good pen and we love a good stationary sure. chat. Um, I'm using these friction erasable pens that, oh, yes. uh, they actually really erase very well. And one of the things that I've struggled with as I've been trying to develop a bullet journal is I'm a big consistency person. So if I write something one way on one page, if I do a daily spread one way, and then the next day I do it differently or I make a mistake and do it differently, that really bothers me. And so that's one of the reasons I've abandoned this project in the plat in the past is because I'll, I'll get like four or five days into it. And then like my daily spread is written different, or I, I count out the number of boxes I'm using wrong. There's lots of different issues. Well, with these pens, you can just erase them and go on. Um, and what's nice, part of what's been a struggle for me in the past is figuring out like visually, how do I want this to look? Right. And I've never been able to figure out a good way that I like it that just, you know, isn't just like a list of items. It's just becomes data on a page. So I figured out a couple of ways to sort of like parse out and delineate what pages when a new day starts. I've got some some ways that I draw lines on the page that help me to see that. And it makes it look more like a planner that you might buy, but it's totally modular. And when you start a new 
journal. Usually people start a new journal at the end of the beginning of a year. When you start a new journal, if you want to do a different style, then you just develop a different style. So it's not for everybody. It does take a fair amount of discipline once you get started to sort of maintain your practice, but that's actually part of the point. It's, it's designed to take enough time that you have to slow down and do it but not take so much time that you're like, oh man, I don't want to do this because it takes so much time. It really is a, a discipline, but it's designed to be a discipline that's manageable. So check it out if you're interested in sort of developing a journaling habit or if you're just looking for a way to kind of capture what's going on around you. I'm really finding it. I've only been working on it for a couple of days now, but I'm really finding it. Uh, I'm finding that it's actually helping already to sort of focus it. And then of course, I'm combining this with things like atomic habits and, and the note taking stuff that I was talking about building a second brain. Um, I'm kind of combining all these different productivity things I've learned over the last year. And now this is kind of the culmination of it. This is now going to be my capture method. So yeah, I, I really am enjoying it. I'm looking forward to it. Here's an excellent pairing because you know, the bullet journal does take some thoughtfulness, which like you said, is one of its great strengths and some preparation as you set it up, even as you do that as part of like your normal repetitive routine process. You just take that prep time, and while you're doing that, you listen to Holy Name's new album. There you go. And really, that is the vibe. I'm telling you, that's the right vibe. It's got that kind of contemplative vibe, which is kind of what you're doing. We talked about two different yeah. types of contemplativeness in a sense. But in any way, it's trying to be more productive with our time so it might give God more glory and be more fruitful in what we do and be more focused. And focus is a type of worship. I mean, worship does require focus, but focus by itself on the thing that God has given you to do in the time and the space where he's given you to do it is a really great benefit. Yeah. That is definitely for our good and for his glory. So I'm all about tools that would help us do that, that don't enslave us to productivity for its own sake, but instead use that as a way to enhance, to come alongside and support our worship of God in doing the good works that he set apart for us to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what about you? I, I think, although I lose track sometimes, I think you have a denial for us. <laughs> yeah, I do have a denial. So let me take this by way of setup just briefly so I can explain to everybody where this is coming from. This is a denial like I have not given before. And I was really compelled this week through thoughts and my own prayer life and just some ruminations to give this. I, I knew early on that I wanted to say this. And here's why. First, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, in Romans, Paul is so clear about what it means to be part of the family of God. We're going to yeah. talk about that a little bit today, but there is, of course, like the local family to which you belong. And then there's this writ large, this invisible church, this whole body of believers, both past and present to which we belong. And Paul is just so good to help us in understanding what it means to actually put some, using the cliche, shoe leather on that. So, of course, in Romans 12, he says, you really need to love one another with this brotherly affection. And that love should be genuine. And the, what it looks like when you love genuinely your brothers and your sisters is you rejoice with those who rejoice and you weep with those who weep. I'm going to take that and do something different with its denial. I'm going to pull that out and say that sometimes it's appropriate to deny against the things that our brothers and sisters are denying against with in the moment where they're denying them. And then also to affirm with the things that they're also affirming with in the moments they're doing that. And so the denial is against something called electromyography or EMG. Now, if you know what that means, I can imagine there's only two ways you would have come in contact with this thing. One is that you're a medical professional. And so your training or your experience has given you license into this particular process. It's a test. It's a medical test. Or you yourself have come to the place where you've had to have this done or you know somebody who's had to have this done. And EMG measures the muscle response or like the electrical activity in the response to a nerve stimulation of the muscle. It's used to help detect neuromuscular abnormalities. So this is not like your just standard routine blood test. If you know about this, if you've had this done, it means at some point you've run up some, against some yeah. pretty significant and material health issues. I'm denying against this test because I've, I've become aware that we have a dear brother who I, who I won't name because I haven't garnered his permission to talk yeah. about this, but uh, who is going through some, I think, very serious health things. And I know that he this week reached out to ask for some prayer because he was undergoing this test. And I want to come alongside him and deny against this test and everything that's going on that's brought him to the place where he's yeah. had to have this done because I myself have had this test done. And it's actually a two-part procedure. 
Uh, and the other part is called like it's a nerve conduction study. So the EMG is technically where they put like a a, a needle into your muscle. Yeah. And the needle is an electrode and they ask you to move that. That's uncomfortable. Uh, but the nerve conduction study is for, was for me like the most uncomfortable part. And we live in a day and age where like it's a great gift of God. There's a lot of common grace that we talked about Yeah, where we can go and have these things done. It just doesn't mean they're pleasant. And we still grieve and mourn the fact that we have to do them and that in the doing them, it's sometimes also very uncomfortable. Yeah. And so when this was presented to me and the doctor said to me, you need to have an EMG done, I knew as little as perhaps some of people who are hearing it for the first time and that initialism being totally foreign. And so I looked it up, but then I started to ask, of course, my doctor and maybe others around me about this test. And maybe because they were benevolent, you know, they said, yeah, it's, it's uncomfortable, but you go in and basically, again, it's a nerve conduction study. So they're just trying to figure out if your nerves work. And yeah. that was what I desperately needed at the time. I remember that I was talking to a good friend of mine and I told her that I was going to have this done. She had also had it done. And the first thing she says to me is, you know, they're going to tase you, right? And I was like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, nobody had like really given me the full scope yeah. or breadth of this thing, like in just practical terms, in language that I could understand and really appreciate. And she said, you know, they're going to tase you. And really the nerve conduction study is exactly that. I remember when I left, there were literally burns on my arms from the electrodes where yeah. they did this. And they were so kind that people administered the test. It goes into creasing levels, basically where they're jacking up the electrical current that they're pushing through your body. I remember like my right hand was like literally flopping around at the end as they were doing it. It was miserable. Yeah. And so I just want to deny against all of this stuff for our dear brother who's experiencing these things and to say in a Pauline way, I deny against the same things you deny against. And we are praying for you. And in point of fact, this is in some way what the Reformed Brotherhood is all about. Yeah. It's about this idea of doing life together, not in a way that replicates the plants or replaces your church, but in a way that is this lovely icing on the cake, as it were, to be alive in this day and age where we connect with so many different people and to bear one another's burdens as we build meaningful, legitimate, not Facebook friend, but legitimate relationships with one another. And so I couldn't help it this week as I was praying for him and thinking about this process and knowing how difficult and awful it is to say, I deny against all of this, even though I'm hoping that this will bring about a great restoration by God's grace, a great deal of information that will be helpful in treatment and convalescence. Still, can we just be honest that some things are miserable to go through? Yeah. You don't want to die against those, those miserable things. I'll also conclude by saying this. I think in God's graciousness, we find this elsewhere in the scriptures, it takes one to know one. And this is the great benefit of being able to be connected with people and to find somebody else who has been in the very place you have been and to say, yeah, that's awful. And yeah. I'm just sorry. And that, when I prayed for him this week, I was as he was on my mind, I was so, of course, drawn to my own experience in that. So, so overwhelmed with empathy and compassion for that experience that that is what fueled my prayers in a different way. And so if you've been through something, I think you can appreciate when somebody comes to you and says, would you pray for me in that very thing? You are compelled. And God does this for us, gives us this breath of different and varied experiences so that I think in many ways, those who feel alone in the darkest moments would know that they are not. Of course, we know that God is with us. In addition to that, he gives us brothers and sisters to come alongside with that true empathy and compassion so that we might bear each other's burdens, rejoice yeah. with the rejoicing and grieve with those who grieve. So get well soon, brother. We're praying for you. But yeah. I know that the EMG, not a good time. And I'll deny against it every day of the week and twice on the Lord's day. Yeah. You know, I, I used to schedule uh, procedures in uh, a gastroenterology clinic and I would overhear other schedulers telling people like, oh, it's not so bad. That test isn't so bad. It's just a little bit uncomfortable, which, you know, people are trying to sort of like maybe like sort of like get you to the tests, not freak you out. Of course. But I remember real distinctly one time I was scheduling a I was scheduling a test. Um, I'm not going to talk about the test because it's kind of gross, but I was scheduling a test. And um, I was explaining, you know, in layperson's terms, we had these scripts we would read to people to explain what the test was. And I was explaining to the patient um, what the test was. And she looked at me. She said, that doesn't that doesn't sound pleasant at all. And I said, it's really not. It's pretty miserable. But it gives us really good information and it and it helps right. us understand what's going on uh, with your body and hopefully helps us get you to a better place. And I remember her, her the look on her face and she just said to me, thank you for being honest with me because I've had a lot of tests done 
and most of them are miserable. And most of the time I go into them thinking they're not going to be miserable. And I think one of the things as grateful and thankful as we are, especially as a top 50 healthcare podcast, uh, we're super thankful for medical testing, but one medical testing is only necessary because of the fall. So we need to recognize that it, it already, already involves a bit of suffering, even if it's not necessarily suffering we're conscious of. The only reason I have to have blood draws is because my body is falling apart like over time. So there's that, that's the first thing. And the second thing is like, most of the time, these things are not supposed to be inside of our body. It's not normal for us to stab needles inside of our body and run electrical currents through us. That's not typical. That's not normal. So when we act as though these things that other brothers and sisters are going through are not difficult or they're not big deals, or we try to comfort them by saying like, oh, it's not that bad. I'm sure it's fine. We're usually either we're not aware or we're not being fully honest. So I'm I'm a hundred percent behind this as someone who works all joking about being a healthcare podcast. Of course, we're not actually a healthcare podcast. We're not giving you medical advice. I'm not a doctor. I, I don't even play one on TV. Um, but all of all of that said, I know a lot of patients who really all they need to hear in terms of a compassionate ear is, I'm sorry you're feeling poorly. And I hope that we find some answers for you soon. How much more should we as brothers and sisters in Christ be going, I'm sorry that you feel bad. I'm sorry that A, B, or C part of your body is not working the way that God intended it to. Let me pray for you right now. And then also, I've been through that test and it's really, really painful. It sucks. It's really bad. But here was my experience. Like there's ways we can encourage brothers and sisters that don't involve kind of platitudes and sort of like papering over the the difficulty of this and the frustration of it, even beyond all the difficulty and frustration that comes with whatever medical condition is driving you to that medical testing is just, it's a hassle and it's usually not comfortable and it's painful and it's expensive and, and you, it's always scary. So I I'm totally a hundred percent behind what you've got to say on this one. This is, I think this is a really good denial. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say is for anybody who's going through a period in time where the providence of our great Lord has deemed it fit in his love to put you in a place where your health is not what you want it to be, or that there's frustration, maybe even in being able to diagnose what's going on. All I want to say is that's really hard because yeah. that the, the Lord's providence in our lives over our own health is difficult because it gives the test first and the lessons after. Yeah. And it's just very difficult to comprehend and it's hard to not be frustrated. And so I would just say, continue to trust and do your best to go one step and one day at a time, if that's what it takes. Maybe someday you and I can talk about that. I think we have some, some health issues, both among ourselves and our own family, where I think we've toyed with the idea of doing the episode. So we'll save that for another time, but we are with you. And this is in fact, the, one of the reasons of gathering together in like the, where, whether that's in the telegram chat where people can go to uh, t.me backslash reform brotherhood and find other like-minded individuals who are listening and tracking all kinds of great conversations going on there. Uh, because the whole point is to support and to love one another. And so we want to make sure that we're doing that. So we are, we grieve. I grieve desperately and deeply for those that are going through difficult health issues because that is just a very hard and trying thing, especially if that has become for you, and I'm sure it is for many, not just a season of life, but a way that you have to live your life. Yeah. And sometimes in the goodness of our Lord that we don't often understand, he gives us these things, these big mantles to bear when it comes to our health. And it's just hard, loved ones. But our yeah. God is good. It's hard, but our God is good. Yeah. One little uh, pitch or I don't know, a sub-affirmation, sub-denial, whatever. Uh, first of all, you know where a really good place to keep track of prayer requests are? Bullet journal. But you know where another yes. really good place to keep track of prayer requests is? Logos Bible Software. So yes. we're not sponsored by Logos right now, but I knew exactly what you were talking about. And actually, it's funny because I have my Logos pulled up on my screen to sort of have resources available. And one of the things I have is my prayer request list, which is built right in. And I can see this brother's name right on my list as someone uh, that I have uh, scheduled to pray for daily. I actually, in the notes, put a little link to the note or to the message that he uh, shared with us in the Telegram chat. So I can quickly go back to that message. I can reply to it when I've prayed with him or for him, or if I have a question or a follow-up, I can quickly go to it. Um, and and this this really leads in nicely to our topic today, right? It so we, we've talked about corporate prayer. We've talked about individual prayer. We talked about what it means to be the invisible church last week and how the theology of what the church is 
invisibly. What the church is essentially uh, in being, right? If we want to sort of use that that substance metaphysic language that we use when we talk about the Trinity, the church has a substance. The church has a an essential existence that we call the invisible church. And and we talked about last week, it's comprised of not only all the saints who truly believe now, but all of the saints who've truly believed in the past. And it, in, in a certain sense, although they don't exist, so we have to be careful about how we phrase this, the visible, the invisible church also is comprised of all of the saints in the future who will believe. So in right. the mind of God, it's all of the elect throughout all time that he will create and call to himself and save and justify and glorify and all of that good stuff. But the church also exists in this sort of localized, instantiated, physical, corporal, concrete existence that we call the visible church. And the, while the tele, though the telegram chat is not a visible church, uh, it, it actually bears, I think it brings to bear a lot of the characteristics of a visible church. So I'm glad that's kind of the transition point is the visible church is the actual concrete gathering of all those who profess faith in Christ. Now we, we can't know, and we'll get into this, but we can't know if a person who is professing Christ will at some point in the future apostatize from that profession of faith, right? We can't know that at this point. We can have confidence. We can have good certainty that a person is justified based on their profession of faith. We issue the, the um, judgment of charity. We'll talk about all that as we go through this series here. But the visible church is, I'm just going to, um, let me just steal the language straight out of the, the uh, catechism here. This is the larger catechism. And I think it's interesting because we have labored to start our reflection on the church with the invisible church. The Westminster Larger Catechism actually brings the visible church um, first. And so there's different reasons why that may be. But here's what it says. It says, question 62, what is the visible church? The answer is the visible church is the society made up of all such as in all ages and places of the world do profess the true religion and of their children. That last part's important, but I think we're going to put a pin in it probably until we get to more discussions about baptism later. But the visible church is the actual concrete reality of all of the people in the past and the present who have professed true Christian faith. That profession is a visible profession. We can't assess it on the invisible level. God doesn't call us to, right? Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things which are revealed belong to us and our children. That is what we have in front of us is this visible profession. And that visible profession of faith that's what constitutes the visible church. The people who are in the visible church are those who profess faith, and then Presbyterians and um, Dutch Reformed and, and Zwinglian Reformed, they would say, and their children. The Baptists would say just those who have a, a visible profession of faith. So that's what we're talking about today is that visible body, that visible actual concrete body of believers. There are all sorts of implications that get teased out about that. And we'll, we'll come to some of those as we go to these polity questions. But that's kind of the big overview of where we are right now. Yeah, and of course, that's really what we're after is this idea of how does that impact our behavior? In some ways, we're trying to understand how God himself and Jesus Christ, his son, and the Holy Spirit who is applying that work of the son sees the church, sees his bride, sees this actual body. If we can have a glimpse into that, maybe if only even through like the keyhole in the door, then the, the theory is, the hypothesis is, that would change or help us to understand how we ought to behave. So these are not just ideas of, well, let's try to create like a more cute and nuanced taxonomy yeah. of how to view the church. It's nothing like that. It's not like trying to synthesize theology for the sake of somehow being able to slap greater labels and to be able to be more articulate or you know more precise with the language that we use. It's not about that at all. Really, it is about how does this impact our gut level reaction and feeling and responsibility to those who are part of the family. Because in some ways we're saying, what does it mean to be part of the family? And then how do we describe that family? And as you just said, Tony, we've kind of described it as invisible and visible, which by the way, is like what reformed theologians have emphasized. They made the distinction from almost the very beginning when reformed was a thing. And it, but I want to be clear in case some are confused by this, that we're not talking about like separate churches. Right. So, the terms invisible and visible, they're used to describe kind of like two different, I would say, aspects of the church, or I might put it another way. The church is considered from two different perspectives. Sure. It's not that there are two separate airtight categories with one group on heaven, another group on earth. Really, 
on the contrary, there's like this great overlap, which you've kind of already teased at. All genuine believers are members of the invisible church, whether they're living or in, on earth or they're in heaven. Not all professing Christians, though, who are members of the visible church, that is, they show up on Sunday morning, they have a profession, they're saying they're part of and parcel for the body of believing people. Not all of them are members of the invisible church. Right. Some people who make a profession of faith and are baptized are going to be hypocrites. I and mean, we know this, we talked about this. So we're going to find the scripture is very clear. Jesus himself has a lot to say about this, but it is really helpful because for two two reasons, and maybe I'm like, I'm, I've already buried the lead. I'm just jumping into like application before we really got into the, the meat of the description. But for instance, this helps us one, understand the connection that we have to people that like are believers, but not in our community. In other words, like I am more in common with this Zambian believer who's struggling than I do with my neighbor. And I ought to feel like legitimately feel sense of belonging there that is bound supernaturally above what is natural, of course. And that should be, compel me to have interest. Now, it's not like an outsized interest. It's not an omnipresent or an omnipotent interest. It is, though, an interest and a concern. And likewise, though, this also helps us when we're in the midst of our own visible congregations, when we find that things go awry. When Jesus tells us there are tears and there are wheat and they will be sifted, but not now. This helps us to understand then yeah. that we're more than just sinful people all rubbing shoulders with our sharp edges cutting one another, but that there are going to be at times people in our midst who have not, for whatever reason, been able to, or let's say it this way, who God has not saved completely in this sense, who have not given a full profession of faith that results in acknowledging Jesus Christ as the only way into heaven, as the one who does all of the saving, as the one who, as I've heard it says, does all of the verbs that there is still a mix among us. And so, of course, on a Sunday morning, there is this proclamation that's going out. If you are part of a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, scriptural-based church where the law and the gospel is being preached, and that call, that outward call is coming into the ears of everybody. But the inward call is reserved by God for God's elect by God's own wisdom in his choosing. But on a Sunday morning, everybody's sitting together. And so it's not our role to judge that, which again, has all kinds of behavioral implications, but also as it were, I think it helps us to have a better context for living, breathing, being in that yeah. environment among different people. So this like, to me is intensely practical because it really does help us shape our behavior because we actually know more about how God views his body and also what it's actually composed of, what it's actually yeah. like. Yeah. One of the things that I've found helpful, and there are math nerds out there that are going to be upset with me for drawing distinctions between these categories. So there's two, there's two diagrams that one can use to sort of conceptualize this relationship between the visible and the invisible church. The reason I say math nerds are probably going to get mad at me is because actually one is a subset of the other diagram. So one is a Venn diagram, right? A Venn diagram is when you have those two circles and they overlap in the middle, or it could be three or four or 20 circles. I don't know how you would do a Venn diagram with 20 circles, but I guess theoretically it's possible, but you have two circles and they overlap at some point. And so a one is the visible church. And that would be all people who profess faith in Christ of, of all time. And then there's the invisible church, which would be people who have true faith in Christ. And the overlap would be in the middle would be those who have true faith in Christ and also profess Christ. And that would be kind of the people that exist right now. There are some who profess, uh, profess Christ and have true faith in Christ, who are part of the visible church on a sort of technical level, but may not be actually associated with a local congregation, right? You think of like, um, there are scenarios that happen in in sort of like unreached people groups where someone somehow gets a hold of a Bible. This happened in Korea, actually, um, before Christianity right. became prominent. They basically just like shipped Bibles over there and people read the Bible and basically the Koreans who read the Bible became Presbyterians, well, independent from Presbyterian missionaries. They just read the Bible and came to these conclusions. They weren't associated with any sort of concrete actual congregation. They just read the Bible and came to these convictions. So there are those who are part of the invisible church who may not be institutionally associated with the, the invisible church or the visible church. Then there are those, and this is a bigger, I think a bigger slice of people who are associated with the visible church, but they don't actually profess true faith in Christ. I think that's the more biblical model, that there may be those who are part of the visible church who are not part of the invisible church. We know that to be true. 
there are a large portion of people, and I think the majority of people who are part of the invisible church, who are also part of the visible church. And then there are some who are part of the invisible church that may not actually be visibly associated with the church and therefore not actually right. part of the visible church. Um, the the other way to conceptualize this would be a concentric circles, right? So you have the visible church is the bigger circle, and then the invisible church would be a smaller circle within that within that grouping. Um, I don't think that's as accurate, and technically that is a Venn diagram. It's just a different kind of Venn diagram. But I think those are the two ways to think about that. And this is this is helpful for me when I think about this, because although we're talking about um, we're talking about categories that are somewhat ethereal, right? The invisible church is sort of an ethereal category by by almost by definition. It's helpful for us to think about like, all right, this particular person, we'll, we'll call them hypothetical person A. They profess faith, but they don't actually believe in Jesus. They don't actually trust Jesus. Where would they go on this Venn diagram? Well, they would go in the part of the visible church that does not overlap with the invisible church, right? And then pers hypothetical person B who professes faith in Christ and has true faith in Christ, they would go in the part of the Venn diagram that the two circles overlap with each other. This is uh, talking about all these diagrams is great podcasting. I know that you're in your car trying to conceptualize this. Hopefully you don't crash, but I think this is a helpful sort of like heuristic device for us to think about the relationship here. Um, I know some people would really balk at the idea and for good confessional reasons that there are those who are part of the visible invisible church that are not part of the visible church. Um, I think on a technical sense, that's probably true, but in terms of how it actually plays out in real life, there are people that we can't see who are part of the invisible church that, uh, we have to acknowledge may never be associated, may never actually become associated with a true visible church. And we'll talk about like what a true visible church means here in just a minute, I think. Yeah. And that's why we would say, and while we're coming up to these episodes about policy, which sometimes can be, can seem a little bit lame, but it's, it's, I want to make it clear why we're going to go there. It's not for the sake of like, again, like completing our own textbook of like, here's all the things that you ought to know. Here's all the knowledge you must acquire to somehow achieve this standard of reformed theology. The visible church is set apart from the world by profession, which is what you've just said, as well as by its external government, its discipline, its right. ordinances. So like the preach word and the sacraments. So the members of the visible church have obeyed this outward call of the gospel, which we've talked about outward and inward call. So hopefully people can go back and listen to that and see how that connects directly what we're talking about here. So they obeyed this outward call of the gospel, professing Christ, submitting to baptism, placing themselves under the preaching and the authority of the local church, all such persons who obey the outward call of the gospel place themselves in covenant with God theoretically, but they have separated themselves from the world, at least outwardly. And so they're going to enjoy all these privileges of being members of the visible church. And let's be honest, the church is awesome. Like, yeah. I mean, obviously, like it has it's fraught with complication because we are people and because people are sinful, but it's awesome because God has established it. It is God's thing. It is his body. It is what Jesus Christ himself sacrificed for. So this teaching of the word, word, godly guidance, fellowship, real fellowship, not like country cup style, but like real fellowship of the saints. They're all like great blessings and benefits. Like if you're going to, if you, I don't know, if you're going to try to create like a pamphlet for like the church capital C, all of these would be on there, right? Yeah. Like Somebody should make this brochure, like just church generally, church <laughs> as they called out, the ecclesiology, like that, that's what we're talking about. So while in a certain sense, those who outwardly profess the truth participate in an external covenant with real responsibilities and privileges, it doesn't mean, and theologically cannot mean, that they truly participate in the saving merits of Christ unless they're part of that invisible church. Right. So such persons for time are in the covenant, so to speak, but they're never really genuinely in that covenant. Like I, I'm kind of mixing and mincing the, the use of covenant there, yeah. but purposefully to emphasize this, they participate in the covenant externally. Let me say it that way as like professors of the true religion, but they never participate in the covenant of grace, which flows from the eternal covenant of redemption. Yeah. So th this is like key. It's, I think it's key to helping us understand again, how we're interacting with one another, why things might, might be the way that we want them to be. And I'm not just saying like you're in a business meeting and somebody wants the carpet to be blue and you're like, it should be red. And you're like, you're not part of the invisible church. <laughs> no, I'm not talking about that. Or, or like keeping that to yourself and being like, you know, on your ride home with your spouse being like, you know why John said that? He's not part of the, <laughs> the, 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 the I know for certain. Yeah. But, but you know what I'm saying? Like it does help us though 
to kind of understand like the flavor and the context of like what it means to be together because we're together with people that for various reasons, because they're, in other words, there are good external benefits of being part of the visible church. It will necessarily draw people who have either will not or have not yet put their faith in Christ, which is where the judgment must be removed because yeah. that external call that's going out week after week, hopefully from the pulpit, in the music, in the fellowship, if that is, if when God uses that to arrest people, which he often does, of course, that is a means of grace. It is this normative process by which he takes and arrests and converts the sinner. Then we have to withhold our judgment and say, you know, listen, like it, maybe not today, but it may happen for this person. And that is really our story too. No matter where you came into God's saving power, the fact is that he saved you through these normal means and you continue to be saved in a sense by these normal means because your sanctification, the glorification which God has for you are all in a sense reinforced by what happens on the Lord's yeah. day as part of the visible church. Like this is the market day of the soul. And so because you want to go to the market to survive, there will be people who will show up at those doors and have not yet put their faith in Christ. They may not yet be, as you said, I don't know which side of the Venn diagram, the invisible, the visible was, but they may be on the left-hand side moving toward the center. So speak, God will arrest them and bring them into the center by the work that happens on the Lord's Day, but that's also a cumulative process. So either way, I, I just think like this is helpful to frame our thinking because I, I've met many Christians and I've been in this place myself where they are frustrated with visible church because they feel like visible church isn't this kind of glorification. And, and it, they would certainly acquiesce to this idea of, of course, we're still sinners. But I think what they're after is, why is, why is there any compromise among yeah. the people who are here? And, and Jesus himself tells us, this is the way it will be. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think one of the things that um, was helpful for me to understand this distinction and why it's important is to think about the, the marks of the church. And this this maybe is a whole different episode that we'll have to add to this series is talking about the, the marks of the true church. One of the things that I think is interesting is we, we when we talk about the marks of the true church, we tend to apply those to individual congregations. There's a good reason for that. We look at a particular gathering of Christians. We want to identify is this gathering of Christians part of the visible church or is it not part of the visible church? The Reformed confessions, almost across the board, as far as I'm aware, they don't talk about the visible um, marks of true churches, although that language is present in some places. They actually more or less talk about the marks of the true church, kind of capital C. So, so we want to draw the distinction between the invisible church and the visible church. But if we're not careful, what we end up doing is we draw the distinction between the visible church or the invisible church and visible churches, which is not right. what we want to do. Right. So just like we said last week, no one particular local congregation is the definition of what the church is. Each congregation is an example of, of a group of Christians who are a mixed body of the invisible church, and they're a mixed body in visible form. And so that visible form has certain uh, characteristics. And this is where the marks of the church come in, into play, is when we're looking at a particular local body and we want to understand, is this a true representation of the, uh, of the visible church? Capital C, visible church. Does this local body show us the visible church? Do we see the visible church in it? Not is this a visible church, but do we see the visible church here? Those marks, they they almost by definition teach us that the church has to be visible. And I think that's that's what a lot of... Um, I know we bash on like evangelicals a lot. So this isn't just like an evangelical thing, but a lot of sort of like... Christians who are affected by and influenced by postmodernism, and really that's all of us, but it's certain streams of Christianity more than others, we tend to look at the visible church in sort of this docetic way. And what I mean is when we talk about docetism, we talk about how Christ was human or he was God and he only seemed to be human. Well, when right. we talk about the visible church, if we're talking about it in a docetic form, we sort of deny that there are any real boundary markers. We deny that there's any real um, definition. Well, in order for something to be visible, 
There has to be definition. So the historic Reformed Protestant Church, it's not entirely just Reformed, but Reformed, I think, harp on this more, has said that the visible church is identified by the true preaching of the gospel, the, the, the appropriate administration of the sacraments, and the appropriate application of church discipline. Those three marks, some have more than that, right? Like Mark Dever's group is famously called Nine Marks because he's got a bunch of other marks of the true church. But those three marks are the historical marks which the Reformed congregations, the Protestant congregations have said, these are the three things that we look at. Um, I did an episode with Distilling Theology. I have no idea what episode number it was. You'll have to go look for it. I don't remember. But I did an episode where I talked about that with them. And one of the things that I think we have to land on, we have to understand, and maybe this is going to bear an episode about why these three marks are important. The visible church has to have a boundary, right? There's an inside and an outside of the visible church. And it can't just be this sort of like the visible church is this ethereal concept, and it's, you know, wherever Christians are, there's the visible church. So at a minimum, you only have the visible church if you can see it. Like, it's right there in the name. It has to be visible. It has to be discernible. You have to understand it. So in order to have the proper preaching of the word and the proper administration of the sacraments and the proper administration of church discipline, you have to have elders. You don't necessarily have to have deacons, although I think a properly ordered church has deacons, but you have to have a body of elders that is preaching the word, administering the sacraments or the ordinances if you're a Baptist, and applying church discipline properly. And all of those things are actually really interwoven with each other. But I think we have to get past this sort of like concept of the church that has no boundaries. That's the invisible church. That's God's domain. That's God's realm. Right? The invisible church is composed of those who are elect, those who will have or do profess faith in Christ. Only God knows that. Only God is competent and capable to discern the invisible church because it's invisible. We are only competent to discern the visible church, and God in his word has taught us how to do that. And I just think we have to sort of like, we have to grapple with that. And I think it's one of those like evangelical hangovers that a lot of us coming out of more evangelical contexts have is we sort of bristle at the idea that like there's a boundary marker in the church. This, this ties into like church discipline. It ties into what we talked about with church membership. There's a lot of even, even people who claim to be reformed Christians who would deny that formal church membership is a biblical concept. Well, the, the whole definition of the visible church, it, it implies that you can know who is a part of the church and who is not a part of the church. Otherwise, it's not visible. So there is so much weight in the theology. There's so much, let's put it this way. The word visible is a load-bearing term. It's a, it's a term that props up all of the ecclesiological theology that rests on it, and it sits on that word. That When we say the visible church, we mean we can see it, we can discern it, there's boundaries, we can tell what is and what isn't the church. All of that is the realm that we as creatures, as Christians live in. And we shouldn't pretend as though we, I mean, one of the jokes that I think sort of is, is legit, but, but sometimes gets levied at Baptists a little bit unfairly is to talk about regeneration goggles because Baptists by and large profess a regenerate church membership, right? That's kind of the standard. And they don't mean like they know who's regenerate and who's not. They mean they, that they have markers. They determine that, that are evidence that someone is regenerate. And we use those markers as determinations. That's what they mean. But, I think we all have this tendency to sort of feel like we have regeneration goggles. We can tell who's a real Christian and who's not. Well, God has given us visible categories to make those determinations, particularly the elders make those determinations. That's that's part of the church discipline process. But those those categories are real categories. Yeah, that, I mean, I'm, 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 totally do, I'm done I, with I actually, my rant. <laughs> no, that, that, <laughs> <laughs> that was good stuff as usual. I mean, I actually think I would go as far as to say to just add on top of that very briefly that actually whether it's invisible or visible, there is definition. There's always right. in every way definition. God is defining his invisible church. He's told us in a sense and almost I would say very directly what the invisible church is composed of, what it's like, but he only knows it. Right. He only knows who is included in that. But this is why we're gonna we're about to you know jump into all these series on polity. Why this is not just a matter of like how you run your business meetings, but this is a matter of saying 
because God has given the invisible church, which has strict definitions around it, he's also given the visible church, and that also ought to have strict definitions. It's not to say that those who show up on the Lord's Day morning are somehow all qualified just because they are present and there are definitions around them. But it is to say, here is what the visible church is not. So in a day and age where we want to water down or push out or erase away some of the margins so as to say like, well, isn't everything church? Can't you go outside and be in church? Can't This is exactly the kind of thing that not only pushes against that, but says just a plain no full stop. That the visible church is something. It is well-defined. It is quantified and categorized. And we find that present in the scriptures. So these things are important because it means that it means something to belong to the people of God. And though we will find that there may be, un, you know, I want to say like untrue confessions or hypocrisy within the midst of any church on the Lord's day, that that's all true. And that's all part of what Jesus himself gave to us as the standard that it doesn't remove the fact that the church has explicit obligations to ensure that it follows a prescriptive definition that the scriptures give so that somebody might look at a local church and say, that is a church, or at least they believe specific things, or they are administering the covenant that they might use this language in a particular way, or I see that the sacraments are present there, or if they're really not familiar and all of this is foreign, they would just say, that's a strange group of people because they're doing something very explicit, very specific, and they seem to all know what they're doing. And they seem to have a particular purpose and a well-defined purpose in when they gather together. That's the whole point of saying that there ought to be a visible church. And of course, we need some polity to make sure that happens. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think um, this is going to lead us nicely into our discussion over the coming weeks of different models of church polity. And what I think the listener will find is that a lot of the disagreement or a lot of the differences in different church models about uh, how do we manage the church or govern the church or rule the church or how do we how do we conduct business as the church, all of those things, I think what the listener will find is that a lot of those things actually tie into different understandings of what the visible church actually is. So I'm going to I'm going to bury that in and we'll we'll do that sneak preview without ruining the the trailer and twist here. We'll do the Marvel thing and we'll just like embed a bunch of stuff that's not actually going to happen in the movie. No, I'm just kidding. Um and, and also I just had ChatGPT to dig a little deeper. I had ChatGPT write a short story about the difference between the visible and the invisible church from a reform perspective. So you should go to the show notes for this episode and you'll see that short story. It's pretty good. I'm not going to lie, it's pretty oh, good. That's that's a real nice tease to get people to look at the notes. By the way, too, in closing, I just want to say that the visible church is not your denomination. Right. For the record. Yeah. And we could spend a whole episode just talking about that. But in setup for this whole conversation about policy, it's it's not your denomination. We're, we're really after what does it mean to be followers of Jesus Christ and set apart if we're like really called out. And that's the whole point. Then what does it look like to manifest that? Yeah in a way where people can discern it empirically. And of course, that's what we're talking about with the visible church. So I really hope that it's been helpful. I hope that this spurs some conversation, maybe among people who have perhaps not been familiar with these terms. And also I think what you'll find is that they are really these lovely, these like really embraceable, relevant, resonant and articulate descriptions that probably you've sensed in your gut all along about how right. the truth actually works. So again, it's a lovely time to be alive where we can rest and sit as it were on the shoulders of so many great theologians who've come before us and have said, you know what, I've, I have a way of describing this. You can say, yes, you're putting your finger on exactly the kind of thing that I've experienced and felt. If you've been part of a church for any length of time, probably you've, you've felt something, you felt that twinge of this topic. And so hopefully there's some that are like, yes, I'm going to use that. And by all means, please do. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good way to to wrap things up. So I'm looking forward to these poly discussions. Uh, I know that most people glaze over when we get to this stuff, but I think it's really interesting. And I hope that we're going to be able to bring it to bear in sort of interesting, applicable fashion. Uh, I'm confident we will. They're going to be the definitive episodes, although I'm not sure how definitive they can be because I think we've already <laughs> talked about some of them. So it's like some the definitive follow-up on the definitive episode. I'm not sure what that yeah. even means. 
that that's fine. Subsequent definitiveness in some yeah, ways is that's like turtles all the way down, but uh, it's recursive. But I but I really like it. Of course, what, what we're really after is our Savior. We're after the one who is the head of the church and our worship of Him and our pastors who are under shepherds of Him. That's really uh, what we're after. And this is also my really weird ending segue here into. I, I understand there was some question about you and I talked. I've talked several times, but most recently as a result of. The whole Christmas season, we talked a little bit about images of Jesus. We were in a car once. We almost pulled over and uh, <laughs> stole images of Jesus from a church a uh, lot. But uh, I mentioned some of Owen's work as being particularly influential in my own processing rumination and meditation on what it means to understand the image of Jesus. And I think there was some question about what was that exact work. It's the glory of Christ. Uh, not, I think there was some questions that the loveliness of Christ that's Rutherford, but uh, the glory of Christ, I highly recommend. So I think that also would be a good work for anybody who's trying to dive into this whole topic with us about the church. It starts and ends with Christ. It's his church. And so we ought to honor him in it and do whatever he says that we ought to do with it. And so the glory of Christ by John Owen is a really great way to get involved with that for sure. True that. True that. Well, Jesse, even though it's not the late 90s, early 2000s, and I did say true that. Until oh. next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. What if I'm